It is easy to wonder if we are silver now, caught in the cauldron of the refiner's fire. I can't say, but this I know. On a day when poetry can be hard to find, we cry out to the Lord for the tender mercies prophesied by Zechariah. We count to 10 and breathe in the promise of dawn breaking over us, of God's good light piercing the darkness, of his steadfast love seeping into our wounds like a salve, spreading the healing we are desperate for. Peace, my friends, awaits us in a certain city whose holy architect will one day lead us to it. Until then, we are blessed to rest in the arms of the Prince of Peace himself. And for that, we sing out hallelujah and celebrate his coming anew. The reading this morning is Malachi 3, verse 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The word of the Lord. Passage to be read, Luke 1, 68 through 79. It's going to sound quite different from Malachi's message. Uh, Malachi was prophesying the messenger that we know of as John the Baptist. And so this um, is John's dad. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he said through his holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy on our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us, from the hand of our enemies, and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path 
of peace. The word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, as we meditate on these words, in this day as we wait for you, listening for the announcements and the messages of hope, I pray, Father, that uh, your words speak still deeper than anything that comes from me and that your spirit be the truth that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Pretty different, these two. Um, Malachi's message of judgment and Zechariah's celebration of his son, <clears throat> his coming son. Little did Zechariah know what that would mean for John, what kind of life he would have and death he would suffer. All he knew was that he was going to celebrate it now. So today, much of what I um, want to talk about comes from the possibility that Jesus is not the hero of the Bible. I mean, I think we feel like, you know, we are a world or Israel was, you know, a people waiting for their hero. But I'm not quite sure anymore that that's the truth. I mean, Jesus, you know, figures large in the story. Of course he does. Um, but I don't think it's really about him. And, and I don't think it's about God either. And so, you know, this morning I'll, I'll explain how I've come to this notion, um, crazy as it may sound, um, and I'll give uh, some examples, you know, of how it works. And um, then finally I'll explore what uh, the possibility of Jesus not being he the hero uh, might mean to us and, um, and our reading of the Bible, if it is in fact true. So the question is, in a season of waiting, what are we waiting for? Coming of the Messiah is really a vague waiting, so he shows up. Well, okay, then what? Right? I think it's connected to some idea that uh, he shows up and everything's going to be okay. Um, that's actually not really what happened, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But in preparation for this day, um, you know, this season actually um, is a season full of annunciations, right? We, we think immediately when we hear the word annunciation, we think of, you know, the angel coming to Mary. But the truth is, um, you know, there are announcements all along the way. You know, Malachi made an announcement a long time ago. Um, and then Zechariah makes this announcement. And, and uh, an angel came to Zechariah and announced to him what was happening. And, and then uh, Zechariah passed along the message. And then the angel comes to Mary and makes an announcement. And, and then the same angel shows up with Joseph and makes an announcement. And Herod 
pronounces, announces to the house of David that they're having a census, so you got to do something. After Jesus is born, angels make an announcement to the shepherds. Um, and then finally, and what we come to here is that John the Baptist, you know, walked around with an announcement, pronouncing, you know, the coming of the Lord. And so, you know, in this time of announcement, which is quite interesting, um, I'm struck uh, by these words from Kathleen Norris that annunciation means the announcement, and it would not be a scary word at all, except that as one of the Christian mysteries, it is part of the language of story and poetry, image, and symbol that the Christian tradition has employed for centuries to convey the central tenets of the faith. And so really it's um, the story that I'm wanting to look at. I mean, I've built my life around stories, around telling them, you know, as an actor or a writer, around studying them, you know, as a student of literature and comparative literature and classical languages. I mean, we read stories and then teaching them, you know, as an English teacher for 21 years and now a theater teacher. I mean, story, it's, you know, it's my bread and butter. Um, and this season is so rich with really so many beautiful things. It's full of smells and tastes and music and feelings and memories and gatherings and, you know, all of it. It's as if somehow in December, um, our world, at least for a time, gets sprinkled with nutmeg and cinnamon, spiced with ginger. And it's all lit by firelight and candles. It's this kind of sweet season. Um, despite everything else that's going on, it, we never quite escape the presence of the, this effect. And the problem with it, as I'm sure you can imagine, is that um, the season also risks being little more than a confection, this sweet thing that um, we can enjoy um, with um, very little impact except for our enjoyment of it. And, okay. Know that as I criticize my culture, I'm criticizing myself as well, right? I am complicit in this. I mean, I love building the fire in the morning. I love the smells that, you know, our kitchen is full of. I love holding gatherings and we love, you know, lighting candles. I mean, we love all of it. We love finding this kind of meaning. So, I mean, I'm chief among sinners if this is a sin. Um, but I don't want us to miss 
what lies beneath all of it. I think maybe what we're all still hoping for, we can be satisfied with nutmeg, but I don't think that's really where our satisfaction should lie. You know, among all of the things that I do love about this season, the thing that I love the most, perhaps, are the stories connected to the season. It's full of stories. It's thick with them. They fall around us like great snowfalls and settle until we're locked in to our little homes with the people we love behind drifts of these stories. Some of these stories are populated with, you know, materialistic beagles and little boys and their blankets and sad little Christmas trees. Some stories are populated with misers and little boys named Tim. Furry green Grinches and their dogs and cute little towns of Who's. Magical snowmen, angels named Clarence. Six and a half foot elves named Buddy. And let me see if I can get this right. A Red Ranger composite action 200 round model air rifle. These are the, these are the characters of so many of our stories. Um, and yet what lies behind them is something that I think is going to surprise a lot of us. And before I start, I just want to say, you know, the nature of teaching, which I'm trying to do here for you now, is always just a little confessional. You know, I'm, I'm letting you in on my own revelations, those things that I didn't know until one day I did, and I want to show you, share with you that thing. And, you know, I always run the risk when I do that of talking to a room full of people that, well, <laughs> they knew that a long time ago. <laughs> you know, they're like, I was the last person to the party, and so, though this for me, as a great revelation and new, it may not be new to any of you. Um, and if not, why didn't you help me sooner get there? Um, but also, you know, help us, you know, let's, let's think about, so how can we um, share in this great revelation and work, working these things out? So... I want to speak from an area that I know a little bit about, um, which is story. And uh, I'm going to take a few minutes just to kind of catch us all up, you know, to, to um, either remind us of something that we've learned or supposed to have learned when we were in school. Um, but, you know, really what I want to talk about briefly is so w what stories are and how do they work, okay? And, you know, don't worry, it'll, it'll be fun. It's, I um, want to talk first about story structure. And what's interesting about this, and I, I find it, I, I love the fact that Jeff started um, breaking up our service in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. Um, but uh, really, the, the way that structure, that story works is this. Act one, get your hero in a tree. 
Act two, throw stones at him. Act three, get him down again. That's the story structure of almost everything. It happens at the beginning. Let's kind of take them one at a time. So get your hero up in a tree. It's like, you know, at the very beginning, there, there's this establishing scene, this establishing moment in television that usually happens before the opening titles, right? You come in right in the middle of the story, you meet some characters, you establish where they are and the dramatic situation that's going to happen. And then we get the titles of the show, and then the story gets played out. Um, in Shakespeare, can you... Oh, there you are. Yeah, keep going. So, you know, we establish the setting, the character, the dramatic situation, which is meant to create change, right? We know this dramatic situation, we call it the problem or the tension or the conflict. Um, but um, uh, maybe a very familiar um, Beginning of a story is Romeo and Juliet, the prologue. Uh, can anybody read that? <laughs> so let me read that out to you. Uh, get this. Two households, both alike in dignity in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. Established setting. An established character, two households. From ancient grudge, break to new mutiny. Dramatic situation. Right? Three lines, all three done. First three lines, we're on it. Shakespeare's on it. Where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, from forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crust lovers take their life. <laughs> Whose misadventured, misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife, the fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove, is now the two hours traffic on our stage, the which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. People, Shakespeare got it, he understands it, we learn from him. Who are we talking about? Where is it happening? What's the problem? So, Throwing rocks at him, the act two portion. Well, this is like the bulk of the story, and it's, you know, the complications, right? Every once in a while you get to, um, you know, see the character, the protagonist, or the more common phrase, the hero, um, make progress and then meet an obstacle and have to overcome that obstacle, the complication, this is all called rising action, and every, you know, so often there it seems more progress and then, you know, struggle and overcoming until finally we um, reach, uh, which is a series of complications, until finally we reach Act 3 where we get him down again. And, and Act 3 ultimately begins with the climax. This big thing happens that changes the character. All along, we see the character that we met at the beginning of the story, and that character, you know, continues on being who they are and, and reacting to their situations in the ways that we know that they will, always. 
no matter how complicated it becomes, their behavior never really changes until this moment that in literature we call the climax. And that climax does something powerful. It's more than what it does in the reader, which makes it really exciting. It's what it does in the main character, in our hero. The climax changes the hero. It's the whole point of the story. It's called the arc of the character. And so, by the way, any of you still have to take an English class, just so you know, if you're ever asked the question, so what was the novel about? Literally, the answer to that question is, well, first I gotta think who, 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 who what character changes in the story? Because if I can identify the ch character that changes in the story, that changes in the climax, I know what the story is about. In fact, if there is no problem, and if there is no change, there really is no story worth telling. Otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's a report of information. You just kind of tell them who they are and where they are and, you know, kind of what happened. But if there's no change, there's no investment for us, the reader. There's no change in us. And so... Um, act three then becomes this resolution, what they call the falling action of a story, um, where either we begin to see what life will be like now that the main character has changed and the world has changed with them, um, or a complete you know, re resolution, they lived happily ever after, whatever. Sometimes we don't get to see the happily ever after part, but we get to sense that that's the path they're now on because everything has changed. So, the question is, if this is how story is structured, and we are, by the way, creatures of story, we love story, we crave story. I mean, so much of our world is designed around story. So much of technology is built to deliver story more easily, more readily, in more places, right? We have great big buildings all over cities that are built to tell stories, where people pay big money to walk inside these big buildings and the lights come down and lights come up on the screen and we have a story delivered to us. We figured out how to get that story into our homes. So we have these devices that we call TVs for a long time. And now we can put them in our pockets. Used to be delivered on our doorsteps by 10-year-old boys and their bicycles. Let's get those kids out there folding newspapers in the dark of the day so that we can get stories to people because people, we need stories. Restaurants are actually storytelling places, dinner tables. I mean, we crave them. Stories drive us. Churches deliver stories. God seems to have understood this because he came in the form of a story. We call a Bible. It's how we work. So... Here's the revelation part, the confession. I've begun really looking at um, how my life is a story. And then beyond that, 
how its story is really part of a much larger story, a story that God is telling. And, you know, I've recently been considering the, the possibility that, you know, I've really misunderstood what that story is, which I'm sure is no surprise to some of you. And I think that this is one of the most recent moments in my ongoing conversion, right? You have those moments in your life throughout, um, if you are following Jesus, where, you know, you take your first step and things change, you change, your world changes, um, and then you go on for a while and some new bit of information comes in that either you didn't see before, uh, you'd never been told before, whatever it is, and then it like goes off in your life and everything changes again. And your conversion is like new again. And I've had several of these through my life, and this, I think, is the most recent one where I may have been, I may have misunderstood the story that God was telling. Because if I get that part right, then how I fit into it changes from what it used to be. And so, in order to see what it is, the story that God is telling, I, I've got a couple of writers that I'd like for us to take a look at, and I want, I want your help. I'm going to play this little game, right? The two writers that I want to, I want to look at are, first, John Hughes, um, to use one of um, Jeff's phrases, favorite phrases, you know, the um, great theologian, John Hughes, um, who's famous for a lot of uh, movies, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles and all of those. Um, but seeing that our season is Christmas-oriented, um, he is also the author and director of Home Alone. And so how many of you have never seen Home Alone? Never, ever. Okay, so f for both of you, please <laughs> please bear with us. This will take a couple of minutes, but I want you to play this game and come with me um, as, as I ask you questions and you kind of answer them, okay? Um, so dust off your memory of that movie, of that favorite Christmas movie. Um, Kevin is the name of this boy that we... Um, get to know in the story. Do you remember what it was that got Kevin in trouble? How did he wind up getting in trouble? He got left home alone, right? It's in the title, right? Um, what preceded that moment? Anybody remember, right? It's this like famous line, one of his famous lines, what? He's in a family that is like crazy. He's the little brother of, you know, a bully big brother, and, and the family's planning on going away on a trip, you know, and everyone's going, and he's getting lost in the shuffle and all of that, and he blurts out this great phrase. He says, I just want to be alone. It was a prayer. Before it all happens, there's this, um, well, as well, so what happens is then, for some reason, in the shift of all of the, the shifting of all of the people in the story, um, they all wind up piling in and he gets left behind. And he gets his wish, right? He's left alone. 
Um, but before they leave, there's this, there's this setup, this condition in the neighborhood where they're upstairs in the house and they're looking out the window and they're talking about something that they're looking at and it's all kind of, you know, it's legendary. It's, mytho- it's myth that they're talking about. Do you remember what they're looking at or who they're looking at? Yeah, this old man who's out there shoveling. We're not quite sure what he's shoveling, whether he's shoveling snow or whether he's shoveling, shoveling salt onto the sidewalk. But there he is shoveling the, the snow and they're coming up with all of these stories like, I heard he's killed people. He's cut up their bodies and you know stuff like that. And so you know they're looking down across the street through that window at this spooky old man. And so he becomes like the scary character. Um, and so the family leaves and Kevin is left alone and at first is loving it, right? He gets a pizza all to himself, a cheese pizza of his very own. He watches TV, he shaves, you know. (laughs) And there's this side story going where um, there are these bandits, these burglars that are kind of canvassing the neighborhood during Christmas because there's a lot of merchandise to get. And so they're kind of making plans on how they're going to steal things out of people's homes and all of this. And that's happening while Kevin is enjoying his solitary world, his alone in the world. Something you need to know about stories, it can always be read on two levels. They're read on the, like, the specific level where you get the character and everything that's happening and you know, you're just kind of following along with that. But there's this universal level where every character isn't simply who they are in the story, they're representing a much larger idea. Kevin is us. He wishes that he were alone, he wants to be in control of his entire world, and so he is, and in that moment he is separated from his parents. Now his parents simply represent his creator. Let's call it that. So here is Kevin, or humanity, and his creators are gone, and he had wished for it to be that way so that he could have control over his entire life. And so he's living in his world, enjoying things, and he um, goes out and he needs to buy a toothbrush. Anybody remember that scene? He's in the drugstore, buys the toothbrush. This is where we see that old guy show up again. Anybody remember, like, specifics about that scene? He's there trying to buy the toothbrush, and he's, you know, um, trying to pay the, the cashier, and this hand comes down on the glass counter. What's interesting is that John Hughes put the camera underneath the counter, so you're looking up through the glass. Anybody remember what you're seeing when the old man puts his hand on the counter? A bandaged hand. It's a bloody hand. You know, which of course adds to the fear, and Kevin sees it and sees the old man, you know, freaks out and goes running, and so ensues this kind of chase through, you know, icy park stuff, and, um, and he runs out without paying for the toothbrush. You guys remember the next time he sees the old man? He's in church. The next time he sees the old man, he's in church. And now, I don't know how many of you may have noticed this. The old man has a Band-Aid on his hand. Do you remember where it was? 
He's sitting there in the pew, and there's this one shot, very clear. The hand is toward the camera, and there's a Band-Aid on the back of his hand. The scene before, he's got the bandage on the palm of his hand. And the next scene, he's in the church, and his Band-Aid's on the back of the hand. As if somehow the wound went all the way through. And this is where Kevin speaks to the old man first. The first time he speaks to the old man with a pierced hand is in church. At what time of year? Christmas, which is when we celebrate what? You know, the birth of Christ. I mean, John Hughes, he was not... You're wondering, is this all like for real? I mean, does he plan all of this and all of this? Well, I can't answer that question for you, but I can tell you they have people. They hire people to make sure that their actors don't have Band-Aids in the shot if they're not intended to be in the shot. So either that person did a really bad job and let it go, the editor did a really bad job and let it stay in, or that was put there on purpose. And so the old man starts to take on this force. Do you remember why the old man was in the church? Anybody remember that? Huh? Yes, that's actually the truth. He's separated from his son, so he's in there listening to this choir singing because his granddaughter is in the choir. But because he and his son are estranged, the creator and the created are estranged, he has to come and sneak to see his, his granddaughter. And so Kevin, you know, sits there and is at first frightened, and then he's, the old man says, you know, I know that there are a lot of strange things said about me. None of them are true. You can say hi to me when you see me. And so he leaves the church. Do you know what Kevin goes back to do when he leaves the church? Anyone? Goes back to his house. That's right, he sets traps. He sets traps to do what? To keep the burglars out. The burglars also represent some enormous idea, universal idea, evil, right? Kevin in his life alone, you know, separated from his creator, thinks that he is enough to repel the evil that is threatening him. And so he rigs the house, which again becomes this great hilarious sequence of things to try to keep him out. Do you remember what happens in the end? Hmm? No, there's something that happens before that. Is he able to repel the evil? In the end, no. I mean, he does damage. Trust me, right? He burns the hand. He gets the, you know, the whole thing, right? Hilarious sequence. But in the end, yeah. The old, the old man comes and saves him. Dude. The old man is Jesus. And Kevin is us. And the wet bandits are the evil forces in the world. And we are not enough to repel. And so there's this final scene 
after Kevin is saved, and saved not by Jesus destroying the wet bandits, just bringing them to justice. Kevin um, is, well, after that happens, Kevin comes home, and who comes running through the door? Mom and Dad, right? Kevin is reconciled with his creator, you know, because he's saved by the old man, by Jesus. And then there's this final scene where he's upstairs in the room where we started the movie, looking out the window. And do you remember what he sees out the window? What? Right, the old man walking in peace with his child and his granddaughter. They were reconciled. It's genius. <laughs> and also very funny, right? Who would suspect that in a movie like that, there is all this truth? You watch Home Alone 2, the only other one that John Hughes wrote. Anybody know who Jesus is in Home Alone 2? The old woman with the pigeons! With the doves! With the descend, I mean, come on! Living a... People, don't get me started on Elf! What is Elf trying to do? Reconcile with his father. Oh my goodness, it's everywhere. How can you tell the, geez, the Christmas story without that somehow being in the heart of it? Well, so John Hughes seemed to get something. And it's the same thing that I think God was doing in the story that God tells. Genesis, establishing the character, establishing the place, establishing the dramatic situation, you know, first three books, th first three chapters. Where's the place? Earth, here. We get the making of that. Who are the characters? Us. What's the dramatic situation? <laughs> right, we fall, we think that we can be like God. We want to control things for ourselves. Beginning of the book. Can't get, you know, out of chapter three without knowing this is your problem. The rest of the book is a series of complications. The thing about Jesus and why I don't think that he's really the hero of the Bible, because the hero has to change. Jesus is always the same, as is God. Jesus is in very nature God. He doesn't change. The story is not about him. Who needs to change in that book? We do. If applying these skills of critical theory and, you know, literature is a way in, because I can't come at this as a theologian because I'm not one, but I'm a reader. And it never occurred to me that the Bible was about me. I always thought it was about God. And I always thought Christmas was about Jesus, about his coming. And that's where it ended for me. That was where it ended. But if actually the Bible is about us, 
then his coming means something else. Because if it were about Jesus, right, I mean, the story would be over when he did what he came to do, right? He was born, right? Finally, the Messiah came. The story's not over. He died. The story's not over. He even said, it is finished. But the story wasn't over. He's resurrected and ascends into heaven. But the story's not over, not near over. It's kind of where, you know, we start doing stuff. It's where it begins for us in so many ways. So, what is the story that God is telling? Makes us the hero, makes me the hero. Which means if the hero of every story has to do something, which means change, that means that's exactly what I have to do, is change. That's the purpose, actually, I'm guessing, at Jesus' coming. Because he came to help us change. That's what we're waiting for. He came to change us, to redeem us, to transform us. That's the point of his birth. That's what we're waiting for, is to be changed. Even not for the world to change, but for us to change. It's when we change that the rest of the world does. I remember Nikki once, as uh, we were having this conversation, and I said, you know, why is it that, you know, our circumstances, which were dire at the moment, don't ever change? We pray and we pray. And, and Nikki said, because God isn't that interested in our circumstances and changing our circumstances. He's much more interested in changing us. And I thought, mind blown, you know, you know. And I've never forgotten it. Yet it's taken me quite a while to actually apply it now to the way I read Scripture. And the, here's the other thing. God, Jesus as hero, he, um, he's not even able to prove that God sent him. Jesus is not the proof. We are. We carry that power. He doesn't have the power to prove that God sent him. Somehow, we would think he would, and if he does, he didn't exercise it. Instead, he says this. In John 17, my prayer is not for them alone, his friends, his disciples, the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all of us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The power of Jesus being seen as the Son of God 
is actually in us and how we live, what we do. So, if I am part of a story, and that story is part of one that's being told by God, and the story that God is trying to tell is one about our change, I suppose the question is, so can I advance the plot? Do I have to wait on Jesus to advance the plot? Or can I somehow be an agent of that too? It's interesting, Jeff had said last week, he said, you know, last week was the week of hope, the Sunday of hope in Advent. And that in the end, he said that it's, you know, about hope is really about patience. The condition of not having and being patient for it to eventually come. And there's this thing about patience, you know, and I think this is the, this is the, the glass half empty view of patience, is that patience is just waiting. And by waiting, I mean sitting there doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs, waiting. But there's, you know, there's another kind of patience. This is a very active patience. If you want to be a great pianist, you sit down at the piano and you can't play it very well. And so you think, well, maybe tomorrow I'll be able to do it. And you plunk on it on Tuesday and you wake up Wednesday and doggone it, you're not really much better than you were on Tuesday. And so you play some more, and you play some more, and you play some more, and you work that thing. You do the scales. You hate the work, but you're busy at it until one day you're doing it. In ballet, the same thing. In dance, you can't do that thing. You can't lift your leg up to here. I mean, I, you can't. You want me to? I'll show you. <laughs> ballet dancers can lift their leg up to here. But I can tell you they didn't start that way. And I used to be able to get it up here without my hands. But I didn't start that way. But one day, honestly, it's just like it happened. One day I, and my leg went up and I go. <laughs> but believe me, it took me a long time. I had to be patient for that to happen. Chess, you can't get good at it fast. You get good at it over time. And so there is patience, but it's an active patience. It's waiting for that thing that you are, you are on about to suddenly kick in, to suddenly open up. And I think that kind of patience, um, maybe what Jeff, you know, is alluding to, So in advancing the plot, you know, Romans tells us, Romans 12, 17 says, you know, to be transformed, no longer be conformed, be transformed. John the Baptist was out there advancing the plot, telling us that it's coming, be ready, be prepared, start working now, be patient, but not too patient, be patient, but actively patient. He's coming. And then he says, 
In Corinthians, Paul talks about being called to the ministry of reconciliation. That in the end, so what should we be working on? How can we be actively patient? What is our transformation going to result in? Peace. Shalom. That's where it all adds up. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. So from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. We're being changed here. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. New creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. We've been changed. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does that look like? This is the last thing. Christmas is about childbirth. As beautiful as the event is, childbirth, uh, it's also a very violent upheaval in a woman's body. It is an upheaval in a family's home. Everything changes. Our own salvation is spoken of by Jesus as birth. It's about being born again. And, you know, when it really takes hold, everything changes. It is an upheaval to our lives. It is disruption of our status quo. And so Paul in Romans writes this, picturing our role in the image of birth. I consider, this is Romans 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by his own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The whole world is waiting for us to be born as children of God. 
Maybe that's what the Advent is. Not simply waiting for Christ's arrival in the world, but Christ's arrival in our lives to the point that we are changed by him. And that our, that change disrupts everything. Maybe this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that we sing in the voice of Israel is better titled for us now, O Come, O Come, Children of God. to help advance our plot. And we do it by disrupting things, holy disruptions. And I think that's it. Light disrupts darkness. Salt disrupts blandness. Peace disrupts conflict. Creativity disrupts destruction. Forgiveness disrupts Revenge or vengeance. Justice disrupts injustice. Humility disrupts arrogance. Life disrupts death. We are to live in the world in a way that disrupts it. To bring shalom. So... As we wait in Advent for the birth of Christ, wait also for how that disrupts us in ways that we can disrupt the world.